Music Respawn. I'm Kate Remington with Austin Wintry, and boy, it's just so great to get caught up with you. Likewise, I I never get tired of these chats, so uh, I, I'm very happy you were uh, interested in talking about this crazy little adventure uh, that was had, and and uh, uh, and you know, you're always always one of those folks who it's it's inescapable now when when doing something, especially if it's something kind of wild. I think oh. Hope there's a reasonable good chance that uh, Kate and I will end up talking about this. Uh, oh, you know, in, they're <laughs> they're always is. kind of baked into the premise of my shenanigans at this point. Oh, that's so great! Well, you created a symphony from your soundtrack for Journey, and it's been out for a while. And I know you've talked with other people about it too, but I think it's going to be really fun to just dive in and and talk about you know the process of creating it and all of that. And it's it's just phenomenal and I, I was trying to you know, sort of get my head around what it is that makes it so special and the <laughs> the example that I have is I've had some pretty good mac and cheese in my day but then a friend of mine <laughs> took me to this little hole in the wall place in Vermont and the mac and cheese there was like a revelation it was just like the most perfect mac and cheese ever with this whole spectrum of different kinds of cheese and that's kind of what it's been like listening to this orchestral version of journey well i can think of no greater aspiration than the vermont hole in the wall mac and cheese grade albums <laughs> uh so that's that's a good you've given me a new kind of benchmark to to rate things by i like it very much <laughs> But I, I love how this all kind of came together from a bunch of different sources, really, because it sounds like you were kicking around the idea of doing something to celebrate Journey's 10th anniversary. And you had this invite from the London Symphony Orchestra to, you know, play something that you wrote at some point. And it just I know it's not a happy accident because you had to work a bit to make everything line <laughs> up, right? <laughs> oh, to say the least. Yeah. Well, yeah, as you definitely uh, accurately state there, there were a handful of convening threads that led to it. The the first of which was the LSO kind of cold calling me five years ago, maybe something like that. And just kind of saying, here's our number in case you ever want to, you know, get get into the studio and, and, and do some 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 craziness together. And I, um, you know, I, I was I, blown away as sort of the ultimate composer bucket list item is to work with the LSO. Uh, but I was also kind of at a loss of how to, you know, m sort of properly take advantage of that as somebody that outside of concert adaptations of my work, I actually really rarely write for normal 19th century traditional kind of romantic orchestra. I mean, as you well know, I'm I'm very often writing for these, you know, kind of custom and, and usually rather odd instrumental combinations that are very specific to whatever is the project at hand. And the notion of, you know, the closest I ever come to 
routine uh, use of uh, something you might label traditional orchestra is that I'm no stranger to kind of having string, you know, traditionally configured string ensembles in my work um, as one layer or one component part, which that's that's the most bit of orchestralness that Journey can lay claim to is that there are some, uh, you know, some strings in uh, bits of it, toward, especially towards the end, the original Journey, I mean. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so it was one of those where I just thought, how, how, you know, how do I properly take advantage of this wonderful invitation from the LSO when the reality is I don't actually, I'm not actually interested in traditional orchestra very often. Occasionally projects come up where it's like, okay, this, I'll make that, I'll make, you know, traditional use of the orchestra kind of part of the, the MO here. Even then there's still usually something that is amiss. Like I did a film a number of years ago called The Rendezvous, which was recorded with the Colorado Symphony in a very traditional configuration. But even then I, I couldn't resist, you know, there was some kind of like, you know, very um, kind of warped uh, baritone saxophone and, and a few other things that kind of snuck in there that you wouldn't really call traditional orchestra, uh, but it was more traditional than not. Um, and that was, it, it felt, it felt so bizarre at the time. It was so, and it was kind of fun, uh, but it was, it was not typical. And so, yeah, this, this uh, was an interesting exercise in, you know, okay, how do I take a thing that was fundamentally not built to be that way? and really lean into using the, the orchestra in this manner, in this wonderfully robust traditional way. And, 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 and in a gargantuan way too. I mean, it was an absolutely huge lineup. It was, you know, just so much fun, but you know, over 90 pieces in the orchestra, 30 voice choir, Tina Guo overdubbing a cello here in Los Angeles. And then for the ending, uh, the song I was born for this uh, additional, you know, almost dozen singers uh, kind of all coalescing. And I, I ran the numbers and all told, it was like 135, I think, musicians, um, which is just so far beyond the original journey. But yeah, in any case, just to your, to your actual original question of how it all got started, it was definitely the, okay, journey is, 10th anniversary is kind of over the hill, uh, which was its own kind of surreal and shocking realization at one point going holy crap it's kept so it's almost 10 years how's that even possible and then yeah the lso in the back of my mind and just kind of smashing those together and reaching out to them and saying okay you know what can we do between now and march 13th this was i don't i think maybe august or september 2021 so i had you know six months and change uh to to figure it out and uh you know just went from there putting the pieces together
it's just amazing. I mean, how much pressure did you put on yourself knowing that they, the LSO, you know, like the Lamborghini of orchestras was going <laughs> to be performing your music? Did that like really cause you to up your game a bit? I'd like to think that I, I never sleep at the wheel, but, but I can't deny that there was a sense of this isn't any normal orchestra. Um, um, I, I really want to, also there is an element of psychology to it where I've conducted a lot of orchestras, including some pretty high profile ones and orchestras for the many, many, many wonderful things you can say about them can be a bit of a catty bunch. And if they, if they start to suspect that you don't know what you're doing, uh, they can turn on you, which is, I think why there tends to be a little bit of a an emergent behavior of con of conductors being rather iron fisted because they they start to perceive the orchestra as, as kind of like herding cats or or uh, dealing with a sort of kindergarten class full of children. And I, I think that I've never been predisposed to the kind of iron fisted way of dealing with orchestras. I much prefer the open palm approach. Um, and and uh, but I can understand why it becomes a tendency for conductors. And I can also understand why it can be very frustrating for an orchestra to feel like uh, a conductor is not up to snuff. And, and, and it's, it's not a, it's not a pleasant experience to play under someone like that. And, and, and it is, and they're to their, you know, like that's in their defense, but I also would say in the conductor's defense, orchestras can be, uh, I think a bit, trigger you know hair hair triggered in how fast they they judge a conductor and 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 not quite so empathetic to how incredibly difficult uh it can be especially if there's any complexity to the music um or if you're kind of juggling multiple things from a producer standpoint and so knowing that i you know it was it wasn't just any orchestra but it was the lso and also i tend to always think long term about everything and so in my mind it was you know hopefully this isn't the time i worked with the lso but is the first time i am working with the lso so i want to make sure to begin this relationship very positively and um and and and, and make them it's not that i was out to impress them i just wanted them to not question if i could sort of handle it uh, <laughs> And so I, both from a conducting standpoint and in a, in a preparation of the, of the, of the arrangements and the parts, even just in the engraving of the literal sheet music, I found myself scrutinizing things tighter than normal, uh, because under typical session circumstances, there's a certain understanding of, oh, okay, that's, that's a, that's a typo because this sheet music didn't exist yesterday. Um, and you know, the, there's 40,000 notes that had to be turned out by the copying team, I, even despite the fact that the LSO is a thoroughly tenured recording orchestra and probably has seen every situation from the most sterling to the most cataclysmic. I, I didn't want to compete for the, the I mean, cataclysmic yeah. end of the spectrum. And, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I, I, all of which is a long winded way of saying, I did find myself very aware of the caliber of orchestra, the, the level of, veteranness that they lay claim to uh in this art form and and in the classical fields and, and so i i i found myself thinking uh i also wanted them to have fun i wanted to make sure that that the 
the, the music was engaging to play. Now I feel that way every time I write anything. I don't care who's the performer. I don't care if it's written for a, a child playing recorder. It should always be something that do, goes out of its way to, to minimize uh, frustration and to maximize kind of the joy of music making. And, and, you know, writing things as well as you can is, is the path to achieving that. And I, and I really wanted that to be a, a thing here. So, um, so yes, it, it weighed on me quite heavily <laughs> to not screw any of that up and, and, and make them all feel like, ah, well, you know, that was very musically vacuous or that was, uh, tedious or whatever it was. I, 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 I wouldn't say I was paranoid, but I, I wanted to, I still wanted to just ensure 10% more insurance than normal that it wouldn't be the case. And I'm happy to say the sessions went, went great. They seemed to really enjoy it. And, and it's a, it's a, you know, I had musicians at the end when we wrapped the orchestra who were coming up and wanting to, you know, take selfies and a, a you know, or a couple were taking their parts home with them and asking for, to, to have them sign and things like that. And, and um, it's not like everyone, every single last member of the orchestra asks for that, but that's usually a good indication that, okay, they've actually had fun with this. They, they've actually, you know, this orchestra has literally recorded with every noteworthy composer on the planet. And for even one of them to feel like this was a fun session. I'd like to remember that felt like, okay, I'll take that win. Oh, <laughs> that, sure. <laughs> you know, that, that's a, that is a, uh, that's a thing I won't take for granted. Well, yeah, and you're kind of in John Williams' shadow, too, because that's the orchestra that recorded all the Star Wars soundtracks, too. So having... Williams and Despla and Goldsmith and, they, you know, they, you know when, when one of the fun things about Spotify is whenever a new release comes out, uh, when you look up an artist on Spotify, like if you look me up, it'll say, you know, here are my most popular albums based on the traffic they get on Spotify. Just how popular are they? What's, what's their, what is their listenership like? But whatever your newest release will default to the first position uh, for a week or whatever in the, in, the, um, uh, in the popular releases column. It's just one of those things that it's a little bit deceptive because it makes it look like whatever your most recent thing is, is in fact also your most popular which algorithmically would be impossible to determine because one week of data can't compete with years of data in, in some cases. Nonetheless, that did not stop me from screenshotting when uh, I went, you click on the London Symphony, I made sure that they were, they were also kind of listed within the metadata of the Spotify upload because it, it listed our album and then James Horner and the LSO doing Braveheart as the next album uh, in there. And I was like, I'm gonna go ahead and preserve that screenshot. <laughs> uh, as as deceptive and overtly kind of uh, inaccurate as it is a, as a statement of kind of the breadth of the popularity of the LSO's recordings, but yeah, I mean, just that was a, was a perfect demonstration of wow, they've, they've they've just recorded so much, and and you know they're also the, Abbey Road. We recorded at their home of St. Luke's, which is the the building they own that they use for rehearsals, and they also record quite a lot there. Um, in no small part because Air and Abbey Road were basically booked, you know, just absolutely 24-7 until well past the date in which Journey's actual anniversary was coming. And the few dates that the studios had, the LSO was, you know, on tour or had concert rehearsal con conflicts. It's, it's definitely different from putting together a session orchestra where you can basically build it from the pool of talent no matter what. But the sitting orchestra of the LSO has a lot of things on their calendar. So finding a time when both they and Abbey Road or Air were available was proving to be essentially impossible. 
but they 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 said you know we we own saint luke's uh which is a, a sort of a converted church that they soundproofed and 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 they've got a big microphone collection and they built it out as a recording space and they they do chamber concerts there and things and it's where they rehearse when they perform at the barbican and so uh, they offered up that space for us to use instead, um, which was a fantastic alternative and let us stay on schedule. It was just also just added to the arsenal of studios that I, you know, can viably use in London that I hadn't, I hadn't been aware of the viability of, of uh, St. Luke's. And it's definitely a very different space from Abbey Road and Air. But the reason I bring all that up is, you know, just as a statement of their legacy as an orchestra, Abbey Road was the first ever recording studio built in human history. They commissioned by Sir Edward Elgar. It was, it was uh, the first time anybody said, let's actually make a space that's function is to record music. Because obviously recording technology had existed for, for decades at that point in the early 20th century, you know, going back into the kind of late mid 19th century when the earliest generation kind of wax cylinders and things started to be developed. But to record music, you know, you would just use whatever room the equipment was in, or maybe as they got more ambitious into the early 20th century, it was like, okay, let's try recording in this church or this concert hall or something. Um, but Abbey Road was the first studio on the planet built with the sole function of recording, and the London Symphony were the first people to ever make a recording there. And so just their attachment to the medium itself, never mind that they to this day lay claim to some of the most famous recordings. Um, it, it just yeah it was one of those the baton was definitely heavy at the beginning of those <laughs> sessions i can imagine i mean it must have been you know a little bit intimidating to just step on the podium for that very first time and not know what kind of reaction you were going to get from them uh, the good news is i've recorded in london so many times that i've got a pretty good feel for the general british temperament amongst musicians which tends to be a bit of the british clichés of you know, a bit stoic, a bit, you know, sort of st stiffened upper lip where they're very difficult to read for the, you know, the whole first day, really, I found myself going, I think they're enjoying this. They're certainly playing incredibly, you know, but it, so at minimum, they're being top drawer professionals, but are they actually having fun? I can't quite tell because also I have a very sarcastic podium manner. Um, which they're probably less accustomed to. And I was not, I was like, I'm definitely gonna be me uh, with them. I'm not gonna try to put on a, on a show of an unduly formal, like I want them to know that to me, this is, this is an absolute joy. And, and when I have fun with things, I tend to be unsubtle about it. So in typically British fashion and far from the first time I've seen this, that first day, it was a little kind of like, you know, this guy's a little bit of a, weirdo uh, but then they they seem to really get into the spirit of it as as we as we went on and and especially because we were also recording just a couple of days before christmas i remember on the, on the last day of recording well, one of the oboists uh, came dressed in a full body christmas tree costume and it's funny because she was the only one in costume and so when you look out at the photos of the orchestra there's just this kind of like iridescent green bush in the middle of the orchestra with an oboe sticking out of it. Uh, and it was absolutely hilarious. Um, but, but that, you know, I, I, I suspect she wouldn't have felt comfortable, you know, wearing that to work as it, as it were, if, if, if I had been someone other than myself, which is one very inviting of people to just 
you know, throw caution to the wind with whatever their eccentricities may be. <laughs> Christmas cosplay. That's great. <laughs> well, yeah, I really I love I love when the when the musicians actually have fun, you know, as much as I love the orchestra world and the concert music world and, and the whole kind of classical music scene. Uh, there's no shortage of, of 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 even great performers that seem pathologically committed to not having fun while you rehearse, while you perform. The number of times I've visited orchestras all around the country and all around the world where they're playing Journey or something else, where again, they're, they're kind of like, yeah, 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 let's just kind of get through this because, you know, we got to get back to Beethoven and Mozart. And I say, you know, don't you, like, yes, that's very worth your time. So is a lot of other stuff. Uh, you know, so is a lot of other repertoire. And also the audience likes it when they see you having fun. Uh, you know, what is the problem here? But it's just one of those cultural phenomena of the of the of the symphony orchestra musician. I do think that it's a partially generational thing because, you know, younger members of the orchestra are are, you know, people like Kristen Nagus who are, you know, they're gamers, they're or they're streamers or they're they're, you know, making TikToks from the rehearsal, that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I, I think that, that that brings a very welcome dynamic shift. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of Kristen, you included her with this performance. And it's interesting to just kind of think back to all of the people that you know, all the musicians that you know that are connected with Journey, like Kristen, who did a beautiful cover with for Oboe of um mm -hmm. nascence and all these other people that you've connected with over the years through journey yeah uh I, I that that was a big part of how i chose the vocalists as well for i was born for this because i the journey specifically and that piece has catalyzed a bunch of people coming into my life and 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 i've who i've shared the stage with or they've otherwise performed somewhere you know people like julie elvin or laura and travia um, and then, uh, it, I, like Peter Hollins, Maluka, you know, I really wanted to kind of wrangle together a handful of those folks and then also use it as an excuse to work with, with people that I, that I hadn't worked with in that capacity, like the YouTuber, Rachel Hardy or Alina, Alina Gingertail, as she's known, a truly amazing Russian, uh, YouTuber who, who does, um, uh, these fabulous vocal and, and, and multi-instrumental covers. She plays like a hundred instruments and, 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 you know, like Kristen, except that it's all over the board, you know, she'll play like harp and guitar and, you know, nickel harpa and recorder. And she'll just overdub herself playing little bits of everything and singing She's truly extraordinary talent. Someone I was such a big fan of and just cold called hoping she'd say yes. And she, she did.
With Kristen, much like with Tina, I, there, you know, there's a few musicians that I've just kind of forgotten how to not work with. I just don't know how to write music unless there's a role for them somewhere, whether it's a big role or a small role. I just sort of need them there. And, and it helped that when Darren and I put together the, the, the super giant sort of 10 year retrospective, initially concert and then uh, record right before the pandemic, um, you know, we had written a part for Kristen to perform in the show and take advantage of the fact that, you know, she could bounce around amongst all these different instruments. And it just broadened our color palette through just a single person, you know, that's, so invaluable um and she's obviously just so uh so supremely on point as a performer and and, and both live and in the studio and so when it came time to do the rap the album it was like look you know there are london musicians who play these instruments but we should just fly her over from from home to play with us at abbey road and so when it came time to do the the lso journey album it was one of those where i just i just i just wanted to do that i just i just was like i need her to sit in with the LSO. And I remember I called them and I said, you know, I, I hope this isn't a controversial thing. I'm bringing an additional member of the orchestra. Uh, and and um, I said, for the record, she will not be playing any instruments elsewhere in the orchestra. She'll be solely playing things like the Bansuri and tenor recorder um, uh, because she specializes in, in these kind of instruments from around the world. Um, I won't have her sitting in with the oboe section, in other words, because they've got a roster of oboists and it's rather competitive to land one of those seats. And I wouldn't presume to just wedge in some some uh, outsider. And they were totally open to, to having her there and, 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 and loved the idea. And it brought me, you know, it's definitely a double whammy of joy to think, you know, holy hell, I'm conducting the London Symphony right now. But nestled amongst their faces is a very familiar face with whom I've just shared countless hours and you know and life you know we talk we talk basically every day and 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 you know and sometimes it's about music and sometimes it's just being nerds and sometimes it's you know navigating difficult life moments and everything in between so yeah I'm glad you bring her up because it was a it was a real real just absolute it was a wonderful intermingling of different aspects of my life because Troy Baker, who's a really, really dear friend of mine, he flew out to hang out at the sessions while we recorded and just just literally just sit at the edge of the room and watch the orchestra perform. And so to be able to go to dinner with someone like him and someone like Kristen and and then my 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 dear friend from Ready at Dawn, Andrea Pacino, who actually co-produced the album with me, the four of us just spent time running around London together. Um, and it's like these are people that I know through such independent channels. Um, of one another. And of course, Kristen was a featured performer on Deformers, which Andrea was sort of the creative director for. So, but they'd never met and didn't know each other. They just kind of knew about each other. It's, so I love that. I love when different kind of legs of the tripod that is our life have a chance to actually connect. Yeah, yeah. The overlapping of like the little Venn diagram and stuff is just is exactly. really, really cool. It must have been a really interesting challenge to have this incredible orchestra ready to go and yet keep what made the Journey soundtrack special, what made it sound like Journey. And so how much, you know, experimentation did you do? I mean, I can imagine that there were moments where you just want to just open the throttle and write for, you know, the huge massive orchestra, but that wouldn't have necessarily been what the original soundtrack was like. Yeah, your instincts are spot on. Uh, that's all 
I went through all of that. I, 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 I threw out huge amounts of work on the, on the arrangements at, at various stages with, cause I felt like I'm overshooting the mark and I'm, I'm moving away from what makes journey journey. Uh, and so, uh, at the same time it needed to assert an independent identity enough to not just feel like a weird, unnecessary cover arrangement of the original. It had to stake its own claim. One of the ways it can do that is through the mass that an orchestra of that size affords the music. So it was a constant negotiation down to every last little grace note. I mean, just like, is that too much? Is this too far? Uh, or, you know, if I, if I, if I really hold back for like nine minutes straight, can I, can I open up the throttle a little bit here? You know, all those kinds of things. And, but I, def, I, I for sure found myself angling more towards two kind of North stars, as it were, w one of which was the idea of keeping things as dynamically under control at, for as long as I can stand it so that the default position of the orchestra should be like a piano or a pianissimo dynamic. Because there's something actually, I, I remember really feeling like I really truly discovered this on the Banner Saga. There's something really exciting about a, a, a group capable of massive fireworks, conscientiously holding back. You know, when you feel like 90 musicians playing quietly, it's not a quiet sound per se, but it's certainly not a loud or aggressive one. It's just got a lot of mass. In the case of the Banner Saga, the heaviness of that that comes from it being derived solely from winds and brass without any of the kind of gluing warmth that strings add made it feel very like dirge-like as a result, incredibly sort of funereal, which is exactly the goal. Uh, but in this case, the warmth that comes from just, you know, 80 people holding a simple chord was something that I thought every opportunity I can to make that the sort of MO of the writing I'm going to take. So that was sort of North Star number one. North Star number two was a sort of hard 180 from my normal compositional instincts, which is I tend to really go out of my way to really maximize color in my in my writing. I really love this is partly why I don't use traditional orchestras. I like to zero in on exactly these very specific instruments that, you know, I can really let them shine. And I really like playing things where you can really transparently feature, you know, here like pathless, here are you know, the Alasha ensemble uh, throat singing while they play, you know, their, 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 you know, like the Igil uh, and, and percussion and whatnot, handing off to a spotlight on the nickel harp or handing off to a spotlight on, you know, a, a penny whistle or what fill in the blank. Um, and, and not really relying on just kind of this broad tutti, the ensemble becomes one big gelatinous blob kind of sound but i found myself going as a way to help achieve that kind of quiet mass of the first north star um i will suspend a lot of my normal instincts and kind of fight them and and keep a lot of the orchestra like you know how thickly can i orchestrate this so that at any given moment a sizable percentage of the musicians are are playing and and it doesn't feel like, okay, this is now the French horns moment. And then, and then now tacit after that, it's kind of like, keep, keep them in there and keep the pot, you know, a little more whisked, you know, it's like, 
a creamy tomato soup as opposed to a very heterogeneous uh, gazpacho where there's diced tomatoes and cucumbers and all things like floating and it's all the component parts are very in in evidence in plain view this is kind of let's let's stir everybody together and create a kind of cohesive whole make the tutti become its own color and that way when i occasionally pull it all back and it's just a flute for a moment or it's just that it's actually really striking transparency as a result that's kind of the backwards from how I tend to write. I tend to default. I tend to think of the orchestra as like this subset of weird, interesting chamber ensembles where it's like, okay, this is the moment where I'm going to feature the piccolo and the tuba together and everybody else get out of the way. But this was kind of the flip. It was, it was, I want to, I want to feature those moments very sparingly. There's one moment in the, in the track called atonement where it, it just funnels down to the strings and just mutes. And then, and then Tina muted. And then the choir kind of very quietly ooing after being in one of these sort of big gelatinous spaces for a while. And I remember I, it was one of those where I kept building, building, building. And then I thought, I don't like this. And I, and I, and I, and I deleted everything and wrote it and just made it and, and, and had it kind of build, 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 and then taper to, to this very, very quiet and glassy texture. And that's one of those light bulb moments that made me realize yes keep the full orchestra as engaged through the whole thing as possible as much as that feels wrong to how i typically would write music i think that's going to be an interesting so then going back and retroactively looking at every moment and going oh well you know i'm not using clarinets here they can probably be playing something uh, and, and and sort of thickly stacking the orchestration in a way i i wouldn't i wouldn't normally
Yeah, but the effect is so wonderful. And that contrast is really amazing. And there's that moment in the call when the chorus comes in. And it's just so gorgeous and so beautiful. And it sounds just exactly perfect. And so oh, thank you. Add, adding the, the chorus was a phenomenal choice. And there, there were singers in the original soundtrack too, but this time you had the London voices. And again, you know, you wanted to make the best use of them too, right? Yeah. Oh, and I, and my, my, the thing I went into it kind of assuming was the original journey is loaded with a lot of textural kind of synth pads. And I thought the choir will be an interesting way to kind of replace that sound because choir can be a, a beautiful kind of eternally sounding instrument as it were much in the way of a string orchestra can create a, an unbroken continuous sound you never you don't need to hear the individual musicians change bow positions or you write for very specific bowings where they move together and it, it just feels very continuous unlike winds and brass where you you know you really you really feel their need for air at least i i always do uh, to me when you know when something is produced to unnaturally kind of extend the lung capacity of a human in a in a brass or wind part, it always feels strange to me. It's not a very appealing sound. I, I like the naturalness. I like the humanness of what they do. Choir is an interesting one because obviously they can you can kind of disperse how they sneak their breaths and just create this sort of endless, wonderful, ethereal quality and. You know, something else that was interesting about the choir is I knew I was going to be using them in a largely sort of ethereal way. This was not going to be a, you know, uh, a, a, an O Fortuna style choir um, and, and, and nor even nor even something, you know, less bombastic. But but even, you know, like this was not even kind of, you know, a Morton Lawrenson choir, you know, where they're it's still very traditional execution of the choir, even if there is a, often a very kind of ethereal quality or the Eric Whitaker sort of sound. It wasn't even going to be that. I really wanted them to be almost exclusively a textural contributor. Journey, it, you can't have text until I was born for this because obviously Journey is so deliberately non-cultural, non-specific. It's very humanist. And, and so I thought, I don't want the human voices to overly ground it in that. I want them to feel otherworldly. So it's a lot of playing with vowels and having them manipulate, you know, kind of, you know, do things like manipulate so that they become a textural, almost like a synthesizer. Uh, and and because Journey is originally so full of electronics and synthesizers, I thought this is going to be a good way to kind of be a little bit of a lateral shift. But but I ended up, you know, using them all manner of different ways, melodically and and texturally and harmonically, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and one of the funny things was because of COVID, the one of the procedures that the the choir insisted on was that everybody you know instead of bunching together as one normally would um, there was like this minimum eight foot distance in a circle around each singer so they were really feathered out so the 30 singers used almost as much floor space as a 90 piece orchestra because there was so much space in between them and they all were kind of their own little isolated islands and so in order to help with the blend and also to just help them hear each other Ben Perry, the, 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 the choir's director and, and phenomenal musician and conductor in his own right, he recommended that we, we put the sort of the men on the right side of the room and the women on the left, but we completely scramble who's singing what parts so that there is no discrete kind of 
physical location of the sopranos, the altos, the tenor, and the basses, they're all mixed together. So at any given moment, you're surrounded by parts that are both similar and different from your own. And so the combination of that and how spaced out they were, uh, where we're mostly just capturing the the hall, the way they move through the hall. There's no there's no real specific point source of the choir from an engineering standpoint. It's not like oh they're there in that part of the room and there's microphones kind of capturing a a close perspective or like a spot mic type perspective and a medium range and then like the surround mics or a deca tree as one normally would and that way they kind of physically exist in the space no differently than, okay, yeah, the piano was at the back right of the room and the harp was at the back left of the room and those kinds of spatial considerations, they were just sort of everywhere. Uh, and, and so it, it added even further in this fantastic way to them being uh, kind of a, um, a textural source. In fact, at one point, while doing the flow sort of standalone piece, I wanted them as quiet as humanly possible. And even with as quiet as they were singing, I was like, I think we can go further. And, and, and Jake Jackson said, what if we have them all turn around with their backs to the microphone? So we're literally only hearing the reflection of them across the room and there's no direct signal anywhere. And that's that got it very quiet and ethereal. And it was a really beautiful suggestion for making the flow piece in, in particular have just this kind of like the choir. You don't you don't even hear them really as people anymore. There's just like vocal sound in the air somehow.
Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And it's so cool because, yeah, it the Journey soundtrack and, and flow, they need those kind of synthy sounds to sort of, you know, remind listeners of, you know, that first experience of, of playing the game and what, what it was like to be part of, you know, creating that music and have it sort of wash around you. So what a, what a cool idea. That's so cool. You definitely hit on that. Uh, the, the idea of reminding people of the original while not trying to supplant it or compete with it in any way was kind of the goal. You know, how do I, how do I kind of trigger the nostalgia of the original that hopefully, you know, because people seem to like this music, you know, and, and even still somehow 10 years later, it still seems to kind of somehow matter to people in some way or another. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to sort of trivialize that by saying, you know, okay, yeah, now let me sort of upgrade it or improve it somehow. It's, it's not meant like that at all. Um, it's definitely meant as a companion piece that hopefully makes them feel like I'm hearing this for the first time and 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 the but I but I but I know I'm not at the same breath I'm not hearing it for the first time because I'm actively remembering all the things that I've built up 10 years of kind of positive associations with so it's sort of the goal was to thread that that needle of new enough that it it felt fresh and exciting but familiar enough that part of the excitement is the way that it harkens back to these things you already know. And it, it was, I never done anything like that before. I may never try doing that again because it was an interesting, normally I'm so obsessively kind of dogmatically about the new, you know, I don't want to repeat myself. I don't even one score to the next. It's like, okay, throw away everything I've just done, start over. How can I, approach this completely from scratch this so all the parameters of this one were just so different from anything i've ever done well i'm really curious because you you've mentioned that it you wanted people to feel like they were hearing the music again for the first time or having that experience and so what was it like for you to stand up on the podium and hear the orchestra playing this music for the first time i mean after you'd heard the mock-ups and everything uh, I mean, it, it's a it's a bizarre kind of paradox because on the one hand, it felt like visiting an old friend I've not seen in a long time, like a school reunion or family reunion or something, where you you think, you know, I've never kind of, um, we we can pick up right where we left off, but I don't find myself actively thinking about you every day, so it's kind of wonderful to learn where you've been in your life and you know oh my god you you have you've grandkids now how is that even how has it possibly been that much time blah 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 those kinds of things there's something there was something about standing up in front and recording this music that felt like that but paradoxically the whole reason why i felt i could get away with this project was because journey's never actually fallen dormant in my life it's not actually revisiting an old friend because the last time i interacted with journey was like you know via twitter that that morning i mean it was just like every single day people send me you know they write lovely comments on youtube or they tweet at me or tag me on instagram or you know i get people's like instagram stories of the vinyl spinning you know where they they tag me and and um you know or people coming up to have things signed or we do concerts you know the number of orchestras that have programmed excerpts from journey over the years or we of course do journey live as a show i've got another one coming up with fifth house in like two weeks um it, it, so it, it's never gone away that's the thing that's so crazy about it is so surreal is 
things tend to go away. They tend to age out and, and people become interested in, in new things. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a kind of, it's kind of a beautiful cycle of life kind of idea that, you know, this thing that meant a lot to me, now I'm ready to go find something new. And journey is one of those rare ones that, that people either just steadily keep rediscovering or discovering and rediscovering, but also, um, you know, even just if, if only gauged by the Spotify numbers, it, it, there's just people that just, it's, you know, they just still listen. And, and so it, it is paradoxical that it felt like visiting an old friend when I couldn't actually get rid of it from my life if I tried. Uh, I'd have to shut off all social media and human contact and like avoid professional opportunities. I mean, I, I still get into that end. I still get you know, work, I still get opportunities and job offers and things from people that solely on the basis of journey, you know, it, you know, I mean, I've had situations where someone will approach me for like an action game and, and I've just done, you know, aliens fire team and which is an action game and they'll start talking about journey. They won't even know I did that other, that other game, despite the, it's far more related to what we're talking about than, than journey is, but they just, you know, journeys sort of put me on a list of theirs. And, and now the time has come where we actually have an opportunity to do something about it. And it, so it's just, it's, it's never gone away as a really overwhelmingly positive contributor to my life. Um, it's one of those where I, I have composer friends who are very successful and, and through, through every possible way of measuring success and yet have never had something like that happen with something they've worked on where it, it just somehow kind of achieved a, a sort of an escape velocity from the normal gravity of moving on in life. And so, and I don't presume it'll ever happen again. I, 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 I mean, the number of composers that live their whole life and never have it happen once suggests that statistically the odds of it happening twice are vanishingly small. And so I, I try to just, feel constantly grateful uh, about it and in a way that's essentially what the whole album was a statement of is just my attempt to be grateful and, and to communicate that gratitude to all those generous and, and sort of loyal listeners and supporters from the last 10 plus years more if you include flow um so yeah hopefully they get the message yeah <laughs> well we connected for the first time in a journey related way too because one of the very first episodes that i did was with eric and melissa snoza about their journey live kickstarter mm -hmm. and then we met for the first time at that concert in brooklyn of journey live and then you know <laughs> we keep connecting and so it has this ripple effect which is really astonishing and case in point uh yesterday was the sixth anniversary of of uh sony santa monica resharing Angela's journey cosplay which put her on my radar and it just reached out to her as an admirer of her of her artistry and was just like I'm blown away you know you 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 how do I how do I how do I thank you it's so surreal to see someone do such incredible work with a thing that I was attached to not that I created not that I was the art director or something and that was like my character design that she's now cosplayed um, but just even working on a game and seeing someone, you know, not just create this incredible costume, but to take those photos in Egypt 
was just so astounding, you know, that that sort of initial contact, you know, as she wrote on Twitter earlier today, you know, ended up being sort of the opening salvo of, of quite dramatic life altering trajectory. And that's all owed to Journey. Um, you know, so it's, 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 um, yeah, I mean, it, it's the single most uh, life altering thing that has ever happened in every sense for me. Wow. It's, it's an amazing, just accomplishment for everybody. And I remember you telling me, oh, I don't know, quite a few conversations ago, that one of the things you really appreciate about projects are the ones that really push you and stretch you artistically. And I, oh, yeah. it sounds like this one did the same thing. Oh yeah. I mean, this one was, uh, this one was the challenge of, can I kind of go back to my roots of writing for a traditional orchestra and still do something that kind of feels like me? Like what, what, what defines me as a composer? Since so much of what has defined me is this kind of radical experimentation and, and particularly with in the kind of musical palette I'm working with, it's like, can I go with admittedly a very grand and 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 illustrious version of a kind of meat and potatoes aesthetic can i write something that feels like me uh feels faithful to journey you know is is interesting to play so it, it was kind of an interesting kind of you know back to basics like those you know like those rocky movies where you know it's like okay you know forget all your normal advanced technology like you just need to go run down the beach with apollo creed uh that like we don't need to lift weights even kind of thing you know but it was it was felt a bit like that you know can i can i feel like i'm truly in my own skin in a in a in a an authentic way um while using this this kind of 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 palette and and and, and i think in the end i i think i think i think so it, it felt I didn't have a sort of out of body experience going, well, this doesn't feel like me. It, 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 it I mean, I, I certainly gave it no shortage of myself in trying to pull it off. I, I mean, I, I just about killed myself over those arrangements and uh, it, it became a really personal thing. Um, you know, I originally thought I was, I was so busy with other projects at the same time that I thought I may not have time to properly shepherd this, on my own. So I reached out to some folks where I said, if I, if I need to call you up and say, Hey, look, I'm, you know, can I direct you through making an arrangement of, you know, I was born for this or something. And as soon as I started, I realized, Oh, that's not happening. This is because this is, this isn't a, an orchestration project. This is not an arrangement job. This is actually a, this is a composition job with known, musical ingredients it's almost like scoring a sequel more than it is writing from scratch or doing a transcription or an arrangement and i realized it was far too personal to to delegate the one exception being uh the flow uh standalone piece i did bring in my friend brian laguardia to spearhead that arrangement although he did have to deal with quite a lot of sort of micromanaging on my part to to direct him and get very into the weeds of that arrangement with him, but he he's fantastic, very talented, um, and and he did a he did a bang up job. And there's plenty of things in there that he brought to the table that I said, you know, okay, this section I I need you to explore 
these harmonies in a in a sort of ethereal way but i i leave it to your imagination to see how you want to go about that and knowing full well that i know how i would do it um, but inviting him to to come up with his own solution and there's a few places in there where he did things i i didn't expect and i i and i and i don't know that that i would i would necessarily have gone that route and i enjoyed the fact that it was different than what i would have done but for the core journey charts i just found myself realizing i as busy as i am i'll just burn the midnight oil i need to i need to do this myself and and make it you know try to tick all these boxes of new and old and all that all that stuff wow well what's next i mean have you thought at all about a live concert with traveler oh i would love to and there's a few orchestras that i've that i've spoken to who i think are interested um it's not a small commitment you know it's a nearly hour long piece and so i've also made it clear that you know if look if you just want to do a few kind of movements i won't hold it against you because typically when performing this kind of music those concerts are not structured the way a classical concert would be where you kind of have you know two or three smaller works and then an intermission and then kind of the one big work or two medium to large works that kind of thing the classical going public is accustomed to that format you know the idea of a 45 minute symphony to round out the night is a as a reasonably mundane programming choice uh, the video game world rarely you know if you're putting on a like a sort of video games live style show you would rarely stay in one place more than like four or five minutes because your fundamental goal is is different. Most audience members are not looking for a deep dive into one title, unless it's a concert like a fifth house type concert where, you know, it's billed as that is this one thing, you know, the, the journey they've recently done kind of an undertale um, show undertale live. You know, there are a few exceptions, but generally you want to hit the, you know, play the hits as it were. And some subset of the audience won't be happy unless they get their four minutes of Skyrim or of Halo or Uncharted or whatever. And so you want to try to bounce off of as many of those kind of tent poles as possible in the hopes that you find something for everybody. So I think the classical audiences would be the ones for whom this pro programming this piece would be the most sort of natural feeling. Um, and, but it, 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 I am intrigued to see if there is a kind of hybrid model that could work. You know, like if you did an hour of, of scattershot excerpts from games in a, in a sort of traditional VGL style presentation, and then, you know, an intermission, and then, you know, maybe one or two more, and then like, here's the 40 minute, or it's actually like 55 minute sort of traveler symphony, as it were, uh, if people would, would dig it, you know, part of, Part of the other MO in the making these arrangements was thinking, not really planning for that possibility, but just thinking of it as an album experience where I, I thought, okay, there are, there are definitely a lot of passages in the original score that are perfectly fine for a soundtrack album when the majority of the people listening are bringing their memories of the gameplay to the table. So they're listening with, a, with, a, with baggage that plays to your favor. A raw listening experience means that you're the show. You are all that could possibly be of interest. So there's material that can work in one context that starts to feel a little thin um, in the other context. You know, whereas 
like a player may want to hear that one moment of that drone because they liked that part of the game but it if you if you listen to it with no baggage like that it's boring as sin <laughs> and so part of the goal was can i trim any potential fat of those kinds of moments from the original score and really make it so that every bar of this thing feels like it's it is begat by the previous bar and is teeing up the forthcoming bar and we're never just kind of holding position we're always telling the story very actively now the, the original score tries to do that and i try to do that in all my writing even the most subtle background subliminal droning music you know like if you listen to the pathless meditations album you know i try to always make sure there's something going somewhere that's different from where it's come from kind of thing. even in the most glacial music and but this album i thought I, I don't think i need any of that i mean even even just that first track of the call i put quite a bit more movement into versus the original version of the call uh with that in mind which i think hopefully could make it an interesting concert experience because at no point do you just kind of chill and vamp but we'll see uh, you know we'll I'll, I'll 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 i certainly will lobby for it and if somebody uh, wants to do it then i will make sure that they have what they need to make it happen yeah that would be amazing and the whole the whole thing is just such it's an it's such an incredible gift to be able to hear this and you know i always have such a fantastic time talking with you and i know we'll be talking again at some point but wow thanks <laughs> for so much for your time today Oh, no, thank you. It's my absolute pleasure. I always look forward to it. I, I, I definitely have some shenanigans on the horizon that I uh, would be absolutely overjoyed to tell you about uh, sooner than later. So we'll just we'll reconvene soon. Okay, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm.